That is a great way to start the morning. And uh, <clears throat> I'm glad you guys are here. A couple of housekeeping topics or uh, kind of family meeting topics. Um, one is, uh, you notice that I came up and did meet and greet. Um, Paul McKenzie and Lance Sturrock and a handful of people from our church are actually in uh, the Dominican Republic right now. They're helping build a school, uh, an additional school, additional buildings on a school called the Dulas School in um, the Dominican Republic in Harabacoa. It's a, it's a common place for our church to go. We go there for a lot of our mission stuff at that area, Student International, and, and uh, for this school and other things. And so um, hope you um, are looking for an opportunity to go at some point in the future. It's a, it's a great um, bonding agent for us to have gone to similar places or same places and, and ministered for the gospel in those places. It's, it's a powerful. So I would encourage everybody. It's something that every Christian should get involved in at least at some point in their life, the chance to go on a mission trip like that. So they're gone, and uh, so we'll be praying for them at some point. And um, hey, on, on that note also, uh, Paul told me that a couple of weeks ago, he got asked by two or three different people in the service when they could start giving to the building campaign. And uh, um, the, the answer to that is any time in the last about two years would have been fine. Um, we've, uh, we've been collecting income on that for a long time, and we are, we, but you are welcome to do that at any point that you're ready to give to the pledge or if you want to give a little extra or something like that. We should be seeing um, some new developments in the next month or so and seeing actually dirt work start early in the next year. And so that, there's going to be a, something up there on the hill we're developing for the kids, um, which is really exciting. And also just in, and under the heading of generosity to let you know, um, if we didn't talk about this, I literally cannot remember. If, I know I talked about this Wednesday night. I can't remember if I mentioned it last Sunday. I guess I wouldn't have because we were still in the middle of it. Never mind, I couldn't have said it last Sunday. But um, we had a total of about 230 Compassion International children adopted um, last weekend. Um, that's a huge number. Yeah. <clears throat> 156 just during the two services on Sunday morning, um, which was, uh, I think they said their second highest on a Sunday morning ever um, here. And the first time they had ever had to sneak up to the Compassion Experience and steal packets to bring back down because they were running out of packets um, here on Sunday morning. And so they've never had to do that before. Um, I'd, I'd warned him this was a generous church and that he needed to be ready and uh, that whole group. And so they had brought a bunch and had still, said, he said, we still underestimated um, how many people. So I'd, I'd love to know, because here's what's interesting. Our number of people in our church already were supporting Compassion National Children. Um, I'd love to see just if you support a Compassion National Child, whether it was or, by the way, World Vision or an equivalent thing, okay? Um, I'd love to see, just with a quick show of hands, how many people are involved in the, one of those ministries like that, whether it started last week or, or years ago. So who's, who was a part of that? Okay, so that's just cool. Um, I'd love to encourage the rest of you as well. If not that, listen, there's lots of great ministries to be involved in and to be giving to. I don't, I don't mean to limit like, because this, this is the only important one, not at all. Why we once a month, if you haven't caught on to this yet, once a month we do a um, ministry emphasis that we introduce you to a ministry involved in some other aspect of our community or world that we're not normally a part of because our assumption is, as followers of Christ, you are desperately looking for a ministry or ministries to be involved in. And uh, by the way, 230-something kids um, represents about $106,000 a year um, being given um, to Compassion International from last, the, last, the middle of last week, from Thursday to Monday. So um, I'm really excited to be a part of that, and, and I'm proud of you guys for all of that. And the last thing I would tell you is, 
Um, We all get to be the recipients of great greeting hospitality on Sunday mornings. Um, We get greeted. If if everything is functioning the way it's supposed to, you could get greeted seven times before you make it in here. That's the goal. Um, That's officially, by the way, hopefully you get greeted dozens of times before you get here. But official greeters, that means, so remember we talk about we need like 84 people a week to run our children's ministry. We need about 50 a week to run our hospitality ministry. And so if you have not gotten connected to a ministry, if you're a member here and you've not gotten connected to a ministry, or on the Sundays when you're not working with children, you would like to, please let me know or Kevin Carswell, out who stands out there at the information desk, know you would like to be a part of that ministry because um, it's a powerful one. It is, it is and not surprisingly, the number, the number one and number two that we hear about, hospitality and children. Not surprised. God called us to that. So just want to let you know about those opportunities real quickly here at the beginning of the sermon. So as we're looking at judges, we're still on judges. And today we're going to talk about some less well-known judges. If, if we did a pop quiz and we handed out, you know, everybody take out a piece of paper, number from one to 10, and just makes your heart rate go up. Um, and so uh, I would say name, you know, name 10 judges. Um, some people could name Samson and Gideon. Probably, um, and, and now I'm not talking about you know you. Hopefully, you would get more than that because you've been hearing about the judges for the last few weeks. That would that would be sad. But the hopefully you could get you might you might be able to get Deborah Barak. You might go. You know what? There was that guy who who made that foolish thing about his daughter. His name is Jephthah. So remember that. You might remember a few others. I feel confident no one would get Abdon though, or Ibzan, or Tola. But but they are in the book of Judges as judges. They just don't have some big story connected to them. So I want to preach through what are called the peaceful judges today. I want to talk about them. Um, So we're going to, I'm saving Gideon and Samson, probably get into Samson next week. And so um, we'll start with there, but, but saving the big ones kind of for last. As we go through Samson, as we go through Gideon, um, Gideon's one of my favorite people in the Bible to preach about. Um, after Gideon and his treacherous son, he has a son who's a weasel and worse, and we'll get to him. But after him, we get this um, in Judges chapter 10. After Abimelech, that's Gideon's weaselly son, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo. Um, again, just unfortunate, right? Um, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years, then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jer, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities um, called Havoth-Jer to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jer died and was buried at Camon. So Tola, 23 years of judging. Um, he was from Issachar. Issachar in the book of Judges is not known for producing leaders. In fact, throughout the book of Judges, Issachar gets criticized for being lazy um, and not a very valuable tribe to the rest of Israel. But they did produce Tola. Um, not much else, right? Not a lot of other detail there that, that's going to matter. Jer. So Jer is famous for having 30 sons. If you're still reading in the King James, anytime you see donkey in any of the others, you get, a, you get to giggle at the, the translation of the King James. But here you have Jer riding, and he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. Again, in the King James, it's kind of obvious, like, well, yeah, they, anyway, sorry, I'm not going to. Um, and so, what else do you ride on? Um, and so you have these donkeys that they're riding on, and it's kind of intriguing, it's kind of natural to go like, well, 
okay, I mean, what does that mean? Because in a minute, we're going to meet a guy who has 70 offspring who ride on 70 donkeys. So it's probably important to know what that stands for. We'll talk more about it under the other one, but this is generally... So you remember, you remember under one of the others that we talked about last time, under Deborah and Barak and others, when we talked about them, that the land of Israel had become so dangerous that you couldn't go on the roads. The roads were overgrown because people could not ride on the roads or walk on the roads. It wasn't safe because of their enemies. So you can see one of the implications of the fact that they rode from city to city, these 30 cities on the back of donkeys, is the roads were safe. That's a big deal. Um, The fact that they're riding rather than walking implies a certain degree of wealth. Um, They're not walking from city to city. They're riding from city to city. Their family owns 30 donkeys. That's probably pretty wealthy. So again, there's an indication that Israel was doing well financially during this time. Enough that people could own donkeys and own a lot of them. They didn't have to eat their donkeys. They didn't have to ride their donkeys in the battle. They could ride from city to city. The fact that each of these young men served over a city is a good indication that (coughs) they were judging alongside their dad. So the dad was traveling and judging, and so were his 30 sons who rode around on donkeys from place to place to help. So they have the margin of time to be able to go do that kind of thing. And you have a a father who's investing in his children. So there's a lot more in this little sentence than you would have thought that's going on here. This is significant, especially given what we've, where we've come from. We're going to talk more about it because we're going to get to the others here in a second. But that's, there's something important going on here. Israel is prospering under these two judges. They're not running to other gods during these two judges, at least not for a while. Um, they're not running to immoral murdering weasels like they did under Abimelech to, re, to lead them. We'll get there. Now, after Jephthah, there's three more of these, but I want to finish up the story of Jephthah a little bit to move into them so you can see this. Um, So in Judges chapter 11, Jephthah only judged for six years after the whole thing with with probably sacrificing his daughter. Some people don't think he did. I think the passage indicates that he probably did, um, which is hard. It's really hard, and it's hard to understand and hard to follow, but we talked about that um, I'm convinced that Jephthah was out of line. It's my personal opinion. If nothing else, by the way, and just in talking about this with the staff afterwards, and, and uh, Paul and, and John and I talk every Tuesday morning about the service and, and the sermon and all that kind of stuff, and, and Paul had pointed out that even in, back in the book, I believe, in, of Numbers, it actually says how you get out of an oath. Like there's actually a way to legally get out of an oath even to God in the Bible. Jephthah did not practice that. Either he didn't know the Bible well enough to know that that was there, Or he didn't know God well enough to know that God was a God of mercy, even over people who have to go back on an oath to him. Um, Again, oaths aren't to be taken lightly. That's the recommendation scripturally, especially from Jesus. What is Jesus' recommendation about taking oaths before God? Yet don't. He knows us too well. Why would we ever make an oath to God? What are the chances that we are going to successfully fulfill an oath to God. I mean, have you met us? We don't fulfill stuff long-term. We're not good at that kind of stuff. We can make covenants, but we don't live them out all that well. Um, I made a covenant to my wife, 
And there are days when I'm really, really good at living out that covenant, and there are days when I'm not very good at living out that covenant. It doesn't change that the covenant's there. What changes is me. I'm not that good at that kind of stuff. There are days when I'm a great husband, that I do nurture her and cherish her and think about her and, <clears throat> and try to serve her the best that I can, and then there are days I'm just not very good at it. I'm easily distracted, and, and my attentions are divided, and I get too busy, and I get kind of selfish, and I get kind of whatever. And so this, that happens to all of us. Humans don't fulfill oaths and covenants super well. We still have them. I can have the covenant before someone to forgive them. That's what I believe forgiveness is, is a covenant that I say, I forgive you. I expect and require no payment on the debt you owe me emotional or physical or, or financial or whatever. So many of us were burned and burdened and hurt and damaged by parents and siblings and friends and other kids and, and all that kind of stuff growing up. And we can forgive. You're going to get to hear in a testimony um, in a minute about somebody forgiving uh, uh, pretty horrific stuff and saying, I've chosen to forgive this person. But there are going to be days when we forgive that we're not very good at living out that forgiveness. The covenant is still there, but some days we're not very good at it. And Jesus, knowing us too well, says, yeah, here's an idea. How about if you don't swear by anything? You just say yes, and you follow through with your yes. Or you say no, and you follow through with your no. That's a better option. Enough of this oath stuff. So we learn a lot from Jephthah. Um, Jephthah, at the end of his life, though, it, you're gonna, we get an interesting little story with Jephthah that I want to talk about. Um, Jephthah, in the end, is given honor for the way he lived out the last years of his life, biblically, by the rabbis, others. I think part of that's because when a man has been broken, like I think Jephthah was, it's amazing how often God breaks someone before he puts them in a position of authority or power or leadership. Perhaps he had been broken. People who understand brokenness lead best. I think we all know that. Um, steel that is not brittle can never be truly sharp. Um, there's a gentleman who, um, who I've worked with over many, many years now um, named Charles Adams. Who you'll, we'll see if you, come, if you come to the men's event, he's out there cranking that. Black, he does the blacksmith stuff when he's out here on, the, on that day. Hopefully he'll be here for the Highland Games next year. But <clears throat> he, he, um, when I first was, we were researching a program. I was researching a program out at Pine Cove that ended up being called The Forge. So apparently the conversation with Charles went well since that's what he runs as a forge. But I went out there and one of the things he started talking about, and this is, this is kind of funny, every year we had to warn the students because Charles doesn't think about this, but is that Charles would have, he had all kinds of scrap metal in his blacksmith shop that he's going to turn into weapons. I mean, pieces of cars and building construction material, all kinds, they're just laying all over the place. And he doesn't always know what kind of steel they are. And so he'd pick one up while he's talking with us and he'd stick it in the fire and it'd get really, really hot. And we got it really hot. Then he'd take it and walk over very quickly and put it in the water, quench it, and then pull it up on the, put it up on the anvil and draw back his hammer and just, just hit it with all of his strength, which was significant. If, <laughs> what, we, what I had to start warning the four students about was, if, the, if that steel is brittle, it explodes. And there's little pits of steel shrapnel that fly in every direction. And Charles never thought to warn anybody he's about to do this. So we don't, I'd always be like, hit the dirt! And so he's like, he would, and if it, was a, if it was the wrong kind of steel, it wouldn't, it'd go thunk and nothing would happen. But here's what's wild. In order for it to be steel that he could use in a weapon, it had to shatter. Because if it shatters, that means it's brittle. If it's brittle, that means it can break. If it can break, that means it can be used as a weapon. Otherwise, it cannot be used as a weapon because it can never be sharp enough or strong enough. That's the kind of thing that he would say, and I would say, like, yeah, I mean, did somebody video record that? I mean, that's, like, that's incredible, the, the, all the little analogies that would fit so perfectly 
Jephthah was broken. At some, time, at some level, at his own fault. But at some things, nothing he had to do with. Rejected by his family, living in the woods with cutthroats. And God had put him in the fire and come out and he had been broken. Again, the loss of his daughter, I think it's his own responsibility. But everything else in his life, including that, had broken him. And so here's what happens. They've just gone and conquered everybody. Another tribe, Ephraim, by the way, who are presented as essentially having no value to the people of Israel in the book of Judges. In fact, they have this nasty habit of coming after a battle is over and saying, hey, how come you didn't involve us in the battle if they won? Then the Ephraimites show up and they're like, hey, 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 we, we wanted to be part of that battle. Now, they never came before the battle started, but they had a nasty habit of coming after the battle was over, right? We call those people bosses. Sorry, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so they, they show up, and they, they really, they, they, they declare, I'm not kidding, they come to Jephthah, and they go, what? how come you didn't involve us in this thing, in this war, in this battle? And Jephthah says, oh, you were invited, you just decided not to come. And Ephraim says, Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim goes, what? That's so not true. So they declare war on Jephthah. Jephthah just had to fight the Ammonites, and now he's got to fight his own people because they've got their feelings hurt totally illegitimately about the situation. Let me just give you a piece of advice. Do not go to war against a broken man. This does not go well for the tribe of Ephraim. This is a bad choice. When you run into a desperate person who has nothing to lose, his daughter is dead at his own hands. How do you think he feels when these guys show up and say, hey, you know what? You've not paid enough yet. We think you should pay some more. So here's what happens, by the way. His daughter is dead. Do not pick fights. So they pulled the By the way, they had done this with Gideon. We'll talk about that when we get to Gideon. So they come and start this. So the Ephraimites come and start a war, and they start mocking the people of Jephthah, Jephthah and his people. So it literally, it just says, so Jephthah drove them out and gets them to a place to where they have to cross. He, he figures out where they're going. He, he just immediately, he declares, when he, just, when he comes down upon them, they are routed instantly. He's smart enough. He has a bunch of men line up where they have to cross the Jordan River. And listen to this. We, that's the, the whole battle itself is not really significant, but, but this is the way it's presented. So, so he comes. They come charging down. They, they're running away. He gets some men on the other side of the Jordan River. And as they have to cross the Jordan River, they come out. And his men say, are you from Ephraim? And if they say no, they say, okay. Say Shibboleth. Apparently, the people of Ephraim could not make the S-H sound. This is like saying, would you like a soda? And if the person goes, soda, would you like a Coke? Yeah. Okay. You're from the South, right? <laughs> would you like a soda pop? What's a soda pop, right? That's a, that's a, that's, we don't use the same words, so it's a, you, can, you can spot people. Okay, say shibboleth. And you can imagine these poor Ephraimites going, and they, they end up saying sibboleth. And if you say sibboleth... They kill you on the bank of the Jordan River. 42,000 Ephraimites died this way. Don't pick fights with broken people. Not a good time. It is brutal. It's a hard book to read. I told you that when we started. Even here, there are some bright lights. So after, after this story, we then get to this guy, a guy named Ibsen. If you're, if you're following along in the Bible, this is in 12.8. <clears throat> He's from Bethlehem, probably not the same Bethlehem, by the way, as, as Ruth and Boaz and Jesus and all of them. It's, it's, there's numerous Bethlehems. Um, he had 60 children. He married his, it says, 
that he married his children to other members of the, tri- of the tribes of Israel. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal, does it? But it is. We're going to talk about it. What Ibzan did was Ibzan modeled obedience to God's law when apparently no one else was doing it. So remember, remember one of the things that we talked about. So in Deuteronomy, look in, in Deuteronomy, if you want to look there, 7, 1 through 5, it'll be up on the screen. So when the Lord your God brings you into the land, you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash into pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. Very, very clearly in the midst of this, we see the instruction, and it continues over and over again. Do not... Let your sons and daughters intermarry with the people of Canaan. But we see over and over again that that's exactly what the people of Israel do. Now, I'm gonna, I feel like it's necessary, especially in this part of the world, in this part of the country, to comment on intermarriage just for a second. I'm not going to spend a long time here, but I want to comment on it. Um, I was raised, like probably many of you were, that these intermarriage passages like this applied to, say, for example, racial distinctions in America today. That white people shouldn't marry black people and vice versa, for example. That is a raw abuse of these passages. It is absolutely a misuse of these passages. Catch that some of these tribes were related racially to the people of Israel. They were other people of the tribe of Shem, this had nothing to do with race. Nothing. It, is, it, it takes the tiniest bit of study to see that. How so many Christian churches taught that for so years is beyond me. That is called isogesis. It's reading what you think into the passage when it's not there. Because it's not there. There's, there's, in no place is this about race. Um, in 1 Corinthians 7, 39... This is, these, these passages, I think, are important. Oh, by the way, let me, first let me do Judges. Do the Judges one first. I'm sorry, David. Again, another one. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Sound familiar? Same ones. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons and served their gods. That's Judges 3.5. You see the direct disobedience to God in regards to this. Whereas Ibzan obeyed. Clearly obeyed. He had 60 kids. How hard is it to find 60 spouses for 60 kids? Right? And he found every one of them. He never let his children intermarry with the Canaanite people. This is nothing but obedience. We're gonna see, when we run into Samson, one of the many things you're not going to like about Samson is that he defies this rule flagrantly. He loves to defy this rule. One of his favorites to defy. Okay, but look at this. What is the application then for us today? If it isn't racial, and it isn't. That's just, it's absurd to think that was a racial thing. If it isn't racial, then what is being talked about? What would be a good application? Well, good news, the Apostle Paul gave us that. 
Um, look in 1 Corinthians 7.39. A wife is bound to her husband so long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Now, he does say, in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. He had talked to married women, apparently. <clears throat> and I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God, right? Listen, let's be honest. You'll be happier. You, it, it, have you all ever seen the studies on this, that like marriage is extremely good for men? Have you ever seen the studies? This is really good. So I ought to look these up and show these to you some Wednesday night. It's extremely good for men. Married men do really, really well compared to men who aren't married. For women, it's kind of a, eh. And honestly, it's about the same. Women who are married and women who are single have pretty much the same life expectancy, the same diseases, the same mental illness, all that kind of stuff. Not so men. Men who are married are healthier. They live longer. They have less mental issues. All that kind of stuff. Men who are single, not, yeah. So, um, so Apostle Paul had done that research, apparently. She'll probably be happier. She, notice he doesn't say that about the men. He doesn't say anything about the men here. He's like, uh, I, I mean, let's be real. But he's, he's single, so he's going to, um, he thinks it's a good idea. And by the way, if you've ever done any ministry, you know that there are advantages to being married and disadvantages to being married. Exactly like the Apostle Paul says. Um, that's, that's part of why you will, you will never see me squeamish about hiring single people on staff at a church. Some people, they get really weirded out by that. Not me. I would have been willing to hire the Apostle Paul and Jesus, both of whom were single, by the way. So if you're throwing out the single people, you may miss some real gems. I'm just saying. Um, all of you have been here at church very long. You know that Rebecca Reigns is single, and that is a gift of God. She intends to stay single. She believes that's what God has called her to. And let's be honest, she's the most competent member of any church staff you've ever known, isn't she? You know that's true. So um, I know it's true. Do not be, how about this? Listen to this. Do not be in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16. This is the clearest passage probably about this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteous to do with lawlessness or unrighteousness? What fellowship does light have with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? One of the nicknames for Satan. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. This is the correct application today. It is vital that we marry within the faith. That's another person who is vibrantly following Jesus Christ. That's what, if God calls you to be married, this is the correct application as it was then. You marry other people who are following God. If that's not the case, then explain how Rahab gets married to somebody. And that's not slammed. Rahab was not a Jew but she was a follower of Yahweh. So it's totally appropriate for them to marry her. The fear of the, the marrying the non-believers is that they'll get dragged away in their, out, of their, out of the faith. So that's the correct application today. So enough of that. It's hard enough, as, as anyone knows who's been married, it's hard enough to be in, married and have an intimate, open, meaningful, free relationship with another human being without the most important part of your life not being the same. It's going to be really tough otherwise. So we pray for that. Now, that's Ibzan. What Ibzan did is he bucked the system and he obeyed God. And, and by the way, notice, there's no reference to um, the people falling away under Ibzan in his seven years. He obeys and they seem to obey. That's pretty cool. Incidentally, I do feel like I need to comment. If you are married to somebody who is not a believer, um, that's... I mean, that's it's obviously going to be a challenge, but it is a great opportunity 
to love someone in the name of Jesus Christ, which is exactly what, if you don't know where to look, look in, second, look in 1 Peter chapter 3, for example, of how to engage with people who you're married to somebody who doesn't believe the same as you. It happens all the time. Um, I don't mean to be um, in any way negative or insulting of somebody who is in that condition. Um, if you're not married, that's an important rule. If you are married, then there's great guidelines uh, in Scripture for how to love them well. Now, how about another one? Elon, um, whose name means oak tree. It's a pretty cool name. He judges for peace for 10 years, apparently, right after Ibzon. That's it. That's his whole story. Apparently, his tribe had fought with Barak. They were honored tribe. In 1213, we get Abdon, whose apparently his name means servant, from the tribe of Ephraim. The one good thing Ephraim accomplishes was to get Abdon out there. Um, his town is listed rather than his tribe, by the way. Probably because people had a hard time saying the word Ephraim. So they would say what town they were from rather than what tribe. Not known for sure, but... He has 70 children and grandchildren. The, Bible's, the, the Hebrew language about, about relatives is really hard. It, it may, your Bible may say nephews. It, it may say um, just sons. It may say cousins. There's any number of things. It's hard to know for sure. Um, most of the commentaries seem to guess at children and grandchildren, but who knows? At least close family. And they had 70 donkeys to ride on. Again, wealth, status, peaceful road, judges, and plenty of leaders, people to go around and teach. And this leads to eight more years of peace. Um, of course, Judges 13.1 tells us that's too good to last. 13.1 says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them to the hand of the Philistines for 40 years, and that's where we begin to meet Samson um, during that time. It is the nature of mankind to shoot ourselves in the foot. Um, I think Abraham Lincoln is given credit for saying, if you really want to test a man, give him success. Um, that's, the, that's where the real test plays in. I guess he would have known. Um, now, this is interesting, and, and I spent a little bit of time looking for this. Facebook failed me this week. Let me just say, Facebook failed me this week. Um, face, this is the kind of thing Facebook does that I always can count on, is I needed a line from one of Tolkien's books. So I put it out there. I was like, anybody remember where this line was? And in the end, I actually literally had to go find a PDF version of The Hobbit and search words until I could find. So, but I wanted this quote because this quote stood out to me so much when I read the book originally. Um, you got it uh, ready? So this is at a time in the book when everything's going well, which doesn't happen a lot in fiction books like that. Now, it's a strange thing, but things that are good to have and days that are good to spend are soon told about. In other words, it doesn't take long to talk about the good stuff, right? And they're not much to listen to. Literally, you just heard about five judges. We'll take two weeks to do Samson. Probably two weeks to do Gideon. We just did 30 minutes and we covered five of them. They're easily told about. While things that are uncomfortable, palpitating, and even gruesome may take a good tale and take a good deal of telling anyway. So they, meaning the characters of the book, stayed long at the good house, 14 days at least, and they found it hard to leave from the Hobbit. Here's the mistake, though. No battles, no great crisis, the people faithfully following rules, no big swings in emotion, no tragic stories. Some of us are addicted to those swings of emotion. We need constant sense of, of action and adventure and, and things going one way or another and we're extremely angry and we're extremely sad and we're, we can get caught up in that roller coaster sense of, of needing the adrenaline rush that goes through that. The reading is less exciting. But which one would you rather live under? Yeah, Ibs, um, Samson's fascinating to read about. Gideon fighting against the Midianites is cool to read. 
But would you rather be a person, the people of Israel, would you rather be one of the people of a tribe of Israel under Ibzan or under Samson? I think the answer is Ibzan. Um, I'm going to share a testimony with you today and, and share some of the significance with that. Um, today is actually Nathan Fisher's birthday, as I understand. A little bird told me, so we will not sing, Nathan. But, uh, but we will watch his testimony. So you got that ready to go? I grew up with uh, six siblings, so three brothers and three sisters. Everything was probably seemed fine on the outside, but at home it was very different. There was, a, I guess, a particularly uh, bad fight, you know, between my, my mom and dad, and uh, uh, that really kind of got out of hand. And uh, my sisters, uh, that kind of sent them over the edge. They uh, informed my mom that they had been sexually abused, you know, for their whole life, basically, and ever since they could remember. My mom immediately called the police and, you know, they came and arrested my dad and took him off because my dad was the one that, you know, ran the business and made the income for the family. My mom didn't have any income. Um, there was still a lot of constant drug use and, 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 and things like that. And so when we first got to Dallas, uh, my, uh, my, one of my sisters and myself and my, my little brother um, uh, were just dropped off at this abandoned, you know, vacant house. After a, a you know, a period of time, probably a month or so, we, we ended up in a house, like a rental house in East Dallas, and it wasn't in a great area. I was about 12 years old. It was kind of like a light switch going, you know, being flipped in a dark room. I just kind of came to a realization that, um, that the, the things that we grew up with and the abuse and the drugs and the, the darkness and just the just all of that there had to be more more to life than that i just started kind of okay so at this point um uh the first time i got to hear nathan's testimony obviously and by the way that is a um is it fair to say a, a very cleaned up version of the account um and uh and so at this, at this point, you, you might think, as I did growing up, um, and this, I know this is strange, but like uh, my testimony is not that interesting. Like, I, I mean, you grew up with uh, relatively loving parents who no one's perfect, but they, you know, they did okay or, or whatever. And so I, I think, again, I'm trying to make this point here of the significance of um, what we, how we engage with these stories and what they mean to us and what type of testimony we're trying to create. So far, you hear the testimony of, of what was the, the testimony that was imposed upon Nathan, right? He didn't make any, any of these choices. But so moving forward, and by the way, he's going he's gonna to get to it's a second about South, about South Spring here and, and, uh, or what it was First Baptist um, South Campus at the time. Um, but I want you to listen for the language as he continues to talk through um, what he's creating now. So go ahead. Focusing on school, trying to, trying to make good grades, trying to, you know, to the best that I knew how, treat people nicely, and just basically, like I said, just kind of do whatever was different than what I grew up with. My freshman year, I had a friend that um, I got to know, and, and one day he just said, hey, you know, he invited me to come to church which was really an awkward conversation because I didn't grow up in church at all. I kind of reluctantly went, um, but I really uh, was just overwhelmingly welcomed, 
you know, by the by the group. It was really the first time that I really can remember just being genuinely loved by other people. And I knew that, um, you know, that God loved me and, and began to try to follow Him in my life. We were moving from the Longview area to Tyler and just looking for a church and ended up at First Baptist uh, South. And uh, we, we knew pretty much immediately um, when, we, when we walked up to the church that that's where we wanted to be. Um, the, just the, the hospitality and, and the welcoming and, uh, and our kids, they were just beaming when we walked into the children's area. And our church is all about making sure that you know, we have the tools and the resources, uh, whatever the case may be, and the discipleship to, to, to figure out what your passion is and figure out what your, uh, you know, what your calling is that, that God is giving to you individually and to go live that out. And if we're each doing that in our church, then there's a movement happening, and that's what I want for my family. Um, I want my boys to be, uh, to be world changers, you know, to go out there and, 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 and have the gospel and go live a life of, of ministry. I don't have any regrets. Um, I have forgiveness. The thing that I, that I, uh, I guess, got out of that the most is uh, just how important it is to, uh, to be a godly husband and father, you know, and to love uh, my wife and to love my kids, you know, and really um, uh, just spend my life doing that, basically. Um, you know, that's the opposite of what I grew up with, and that's what I want. So you hear me, sometimes you'll hear me talk about um, transitional people, those people like my grandfather was one of these who turned things around. Um, so here, the question is, is it, is it an inferior in any way testimony um, that, that Nathan's sons will have? That's not, that's not an inferior testimony. It's not, it's not better to have this um, to have this one thing, these great, so it's it, this amazing thing to hear from Nathan and to hear the story he came from and to see the, um, uh, I told Ginger yesterday, um, you know, the whole, the whole conversation about privileges and advantages and, and saying, you know, it's, it's, it is not a bad thing that, that Nathan's kids get to grow up with a Nathan privilege, that, that he has walked a path that now they don't have to walk. He turned things around for his family so that they have a certain amount of freedom we read through these judges sometimes, and because they're not as exciting, we go, oh, yeah, let's move on to Samson. But I wanted us to take an entire Sunday to remind ourselves this is the type of testimony we are working to create. And it takes, it takes an effort. It takes obedience. It takes listening to God. It takes submitting to his way of doing things to say, okay, no matter what we've come from, here's what we're creating no matter, no matter what the challenges have been, no matter what your church experience has been in the past, when people come and say, man, I've, I, the church I came from was just a nightmare. I grew up in this awful situation. It was like a cult. It was whatever. And I'm like, good, you need to come here. We need people like you who are dedicated to making sure that that's not what church looks like for the next generation of people. It's overly legalistic. God's going to get you whatever mindset. How do we make that difference so that the next generation of people who come to church discover something totally different? That's what we're accomplishing. As much as cool a story as, 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 as Gideon is or Samson is or, or even Jephthah is or, or whatever, 
Uh, my, my heart is that for my family, I would be an Abdon or an Ibzan or a, the other people that we don't ever get to hear about. Um, that, that's a powerful testimony as well. So I want to I pray that over us and then um, uh, that that would be something in our homes and our families that as you hear Nathan said, like that's what I'm trying to create for my sons. What, what a great testimony. Father, thank you so much for the power of your son to make things new to take bad news and make it good news. Father, to take um, a hopeless situation and to turn it into something completely different. Um, Lord, to take something that is just destruction and ashes and from you to create something beautiful, to create art. And God, that's our lives. One degree, one degree or another, clearly, dramatically, or, no, or whatever, Lord. But some of ours um, are easily told. And that's a miracle, and we're so grateful for it. Some are um, shocking, and Lord, those are a miracle, just the same. So Father, I pray that you would guide us in this, that you would teach us to, whatever we come from, to create a testimony of peace for the next generation through our obedience, through our willingness, through our faithfulness. And I ask this in your Son's name for our church and for our families for our marriages, that we would make the decision to make them different. And that whatever we have to repent of, to walk away from, to accomplish that for our children and for other people's children and for the next generation of people who visit this church, I pray that you would call us to do it and we would obey in your son's magnificent name. Amen.